So if you're anything like me, I like a good to-do list. My wife likes a good to-do list. To-do lists are helpful. Um, uh, to-do lists for our wives are helpful in getting us to do work as husbands. Um, but regardless of how it works out, to-do lists seem to be proven helpful in my life. I trust they are for you as well. The question for the morning, though, is have you ever tried a what-not-to-do list? So there is um, articles out there that say, you know, there's actually value in also creating what-not-to-do lists. We do it naturally. So you sometimes sit and think, okay, what not to do? Let me give you an example. Anytime you're getting ready to fly and go to the airport, you run through the what not to do list in your mind. It's helpful. We should not. Don't, do not pack liquids in the carry-on, right? Do not wear shoes that are hard to take off and put back on. Do not make jokes about bombs with a TSA agent, <laughs> right? We know the not to do list. It's helpful. What not to do on a first date. Maybe this is applicable to some of you. For some of you, it's a long, distant memory. But what not to do on a first date, they say, don't order spaghetti. Makes sense. Don't be late. Don't tell your date you love them on the first date. And don't say, you remind me of my mother. <laughs> what not to do. What not to do at church. Let's do that one. What not to do at church. Um, don't forget to silence your cell phone. You don't want to be that guy. Uh, what not to do at church? Don't fall asleep. Don't uh, make change in the offering plate. Remember the offering plates? We used to, there were these round things and we would pass them down the aisles. Now we give it the boxes in the back. Uh, I grew up with this last one ingrained into my memory. I still haven't found a chapter and a verse in the Bible that says it, but um, do not run in church. That was like ingrained into me. I don't enforce it with my kids. I mean, every once in a while, like don't run if it's a lot of people in the foyer, but my kids are at the church so much, they have learned to run in the church, so I don't enforce that one. Uh, what not to do. I think as we look at the book of Jude, we should look at it this morning and make ourselves a what not to do list. So if you take notes, that's sort of the heading, that's the title, what not to do as we look at the book of Jude. So we're continuing through the book of Jude. We started it a couple weeks ago, took a couple week break, and now we're back to it. It's hard to find the book of Jude because it's only one page, but it's right before the book of Revelation. So it's right at the back, right before Revelation, and it's just one page easy to miss. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. We established the fact in the first three verses it's written to Christians because he says this is for those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian here this morning, this letter is written for you. It says that the author wants you to experience mercy and peace and love. He wants those things to be multiplied towards you. He goes on to say in verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all to the saints. So you should say, okay, Jude, why? Why are you writing us a letter that we're supposed to contend for the faith? Well, here he says, verse four for this morning. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only maker and Lord, Jesus Christ. So if we're making a what not to do list, 
The first item on our what not to do is do not be like these people. Do not be like these people. Now, it's interesting throughout the book of Jude, he doesn't name who they are. So we don't know. Maybe the church that he's writing to doesn't know who they are either. And so maybe the best thing we can do is just look internally and make sure, oh, I hope it's not me. So we make ourselves a what not to do list. Don't be these people. So what do these people do? Well, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's another couple of not to do's. Don't pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Don't deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical scholars try to look at Jude and go back in time 2,000 years ago and try to imagine, okay, well, I wonder what the situation was in this church that Jude's writing to in which he would say, here's the, here's the problem and here's how we're going to address it. We don't know exactly what it is, but, but what we do know is there was this uh, teaching that was popular in those days, and it was called Gnostic Hedonism. Those aren't words in our vocabulary today, um, but I'll describe for you, generally speaking, what Gnostic hedonism is about. It was this idea that, okay, we are, we are physical bodies and we are a spirit, right? We all pretty much agree on that. There's like a spirit or a soul inside of us. But this way of thinking that was creeping into the church, perhaps, was that, okay, this is what we can do. We can separate our physical body from our spiritual body. And you know what? The physical body doesn't really have much spiritual implications. We can do whatever we want in our physical bodies as long as our spiritual connection is with God. So there's some really dangerous implications of this false teaching. It implies that you can do whatever you want with your physical body and it has no connection to your spiritual relationship with God. And Jude is saying, oh, that, this is a very dangerous teaching that's popular in your time, it's prevalent in the culture, and he's saying, don't let this creep in. We can't separate the spirit from the body. Now, certainly in Scripture, uh, we talk about the flesh and we talk about the spirit. And the Scripture identifies that there are two elements to us, uh, at least, of spirit and body. But what God does all throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, is he established that human beings are created in the image of God and are both body and spirit. What is God? God reaches down and he takes the dirt and he forms man. And then he's this physical presence and he breathes into him his spirit. And he, God created us so that our body and our spirit would be forever linked together. We don't separate them. We don't say, well, I'll honor God in my spiritual life and do whatever I want in my physical. No, God says, no, they're together. You can't separate them. Don't do that. Think about it. The only time our bodies are separated from our spirits is in death. And God did not create death. God didn't want death in his creation. Death is a result of sin. It's the corruption of his creation. That's why whenever uh, God or Jesus Christ returns and restores all things, he will restore our physical bodies with our spirits because that's how he intends them to be. So we can't go down this unhealthy teaching of what was called Gnostic hedonism to just do whatever you want to in your bodies but maintain your spiritual life. Now this, like the Gnostic hedonism is, is gone, right? Like nobody uses those words anymore. But certainly, I mean, you should be able to be tracking with me. Like, there's still thinking in our culture today and in our church today that says, you know what, I can, I can connect with God spiritually 
And then physically, I can use my body in these other ways. They're not that relevant to the spiritual connection I have with God. Certainly, we can appreciate that this is still out there in our society today. And when we say the words from Jude, do not pervert the grace of God into sensuality, I mean, there's some sensuality things that have crept in, like unhealthy thinking about sexuality that's creeped in to our thinking as a church. Now, it's easy, like the low-hanging fruit, right, is to say, like, okay, now's when we talk about gender confusion. Now's when we talk about the transgender movement or homosexuality and how those perversions of the grace of God is creeping into it and it's into sensuality. But you know where it crept in before all that? It crept in just through unhealthy and inappropriate understandings of God's teachings regarding sex. And here's what's happened. Uh, In a recent study by the Pew Research Center, half of U.S. Christians say that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Half of U.S. Christians say that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. So it's crept in. It's crept into our thinking that, oh, yeah, consenting adults, yeah, that's fine. There's, there's really no problem with that. That's no big deal. That's, that's what's crept in, ladies and gentlemen. That's what's crept in. And that doesn't even... So it's, it'd be like if you leave here today... I understand a lot of people in, our, in Christian culture, half of Christians disagree with me on this point. So let me just double down on the point. I'm not saying we can't agree to disagree. We can. But what we can't do is say that the Bible doesn't clearly teach that sex is this, things are supposed to be preserved and treasured and, and the gift that God has given us to be used uh, in a marriage between a man and a woman. It'd be like if you leave here today and you go to the store and you get your arms full of items from your shopping and then there's a really long line at the register And then you say to yourself, you know what? It doesn't make any sense for me to stand in this line to pay for these groceries now. I'm just gonna take them home and I'll come back later and I'll pay for them. Now I could say to you, yeah, I believe, I believe you have the best of intentions. And I believe that, yeah, you're, you know what? You're a responsible person and you're gonna come back. I can agree with you on all those points. But what I can't agree with you on is you're breaking the law, like, You can't change the law. You're still breaking the law. And when you break the law, you risk the fact that you're going to be judged for breaking the law. And so there can be half of the Christians in America that can say, you know what, casually between consenting adults is fine. You can take that risk and step out into the world that way, but it is not what the clear teachings of Scripture are. And so Jude is saying, let's not do that. Let's not pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And... If you're thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me because I'm happily married. Okay, well then let me just remind you of the teachings of Jesus. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Here's what we like to do, ladies and gentlemen. We like to hear the topic of sex and sensuality, and we like to read this verse, that they perverted the grace of God into sensuality. And we like to point fingers at you know, the transgender movement. But for every finger pointing out there, there's a number pointing back at us, aren't there? And the statistics for pornography is just astounding. And so we all have to see how each of us can be implicated in the fact that we have perverted the grace of God into sensuality. And we have at the same time simultaneously denied our Lord and Master Jesus Christ and said, because Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the way to go. Follow me. 
into a path of wholeness. And we've said, I don't really know that that's the pathway that's best for me, so I'm going to go on this path over here. Well, we have simultaneously stepped out of his path, not believing in him, and denied him as our master and Lord, and headed down a different road. Now, you say, God forgives me. And he does. That's right. God's grace extends to me. Yes, it does. That's correct. But just so that we're clear, we shouldn't keep on sinning so that we can keep on getting God's grace, right? That would be perverting the grace of God into sensuality. The gospel is true. And at Northgate, I like to remind us regularly, the gospel is as simple as ABC. We admit that we have sinned. We believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, his forgiveness that he extends to us. And that's the B. And then the C is we commit or we choose to follow him on his way. So I admit, you know, I, I pervert the grace of God into sensuality. I believe that Jesus Christ forgives me for it, and I don't want to do it anymore. So I'm going to commit myself to his path. We do that for salvation, but hopefully we do that regularly as we stumble into sensuality on any given week. So that's verse four. We have to pick up the pace here because we want to move through the book of Jude. So in Jude chapter, uh, or no, there's only one chapter, Jude verse five, he goes on to say, let me give you, let me remind you, let me give you some illustrations, some examples of why you shouldn't do these things. So he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So let me give you this example, because we may not be as familiar with Old Testament stories as the people Jude was writing to was. He's saying, this is serious. Don't pervert the grace of God. Don't deny Lord and Master Jesus Christ. It happened to the Israelites. The Israelites chose a path of unbelief, and they were judged for it. Don't do it. You're going to be judged. So the children of Israel were living in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. God looked down and said, I'm going to liberate my people from slavery. And he sends Moses and the ten plagues. Through those ten plagues, the Egyptian ruler finally releases the children of Israel from bondage and slavery, and they head off to their promised land. But on their way, they bump into the Red Sea, and the Egyptians change their mind, and they send their armies after them. So there stand the children of God, the Red Sea in front of them, the armies of Egypt behind them, and God reaches down, parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry ground. Then the Red Sea just envelops the Egyptian army, and the Egyptians are done. They might say, okay, well, how do I make it to the promised land? I don't know where to go. So God descends in a cloud of fire and leads their path all the way to the border of the promised land. They get to the border of the promised land. They send in 12 spies. Can we really go in and conquer this land? Will the 12 spies come out and say, oh, there's no way. There's no way. It's walled cities. There's giants in that land. We can't do it. We don't believe that God can give us that land. Except for two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, they said, hold on, everybody. We just left Egypt under ten, the 10 plagues. We just watched God part the Red Sea and we just followed a pillar of fire to get us to the border. We should believe that God can give us this land. But the majority outvoted the minority and so God judges them. In Numbers chapter 14, he says, listen, here's your judgment. Since you have chosen the path of unbelief, You'll be judged. And everyone who witnessed my miracles in Egypt and at this moment is choosing a path of unbelief, they're going to die in the desert. Everyone who's 20 years and under, they're going to be able to go into the promised land. I'm going to give the promised land to your children, but the rest of you will be judged for picking a path of unbelief. Jude's saying, believe, believe, trust, trust and obey. 
Trust that God's path is the best path for you and follow on the way that he shows us in his word. Let's believe that he really knows the best for us and trust and obey him. It says, don't be like the Israelites. But then it goes on to say in verse six, don't be like the angels. So, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So there's fallen angels in the world, right? That's a general understanding amongst uh, Christianity is that there were angels in heaven and some of them are fallen angels that are now demons. There's also, though, a section in Genesis chapter 6 that's really weird where it seems like the angels in heaven chose to leave their position in heaven and come down to the earth and have sex with women. Their offspring are referred to as the Nephilim. You can read Genesis chapter 6. It's weird. If you're going to read the Bible, you just need to get used to weird. There's a lot of weird stuff. Um, And so most Bible scholars think that that's what Jude is referencing here. Whichever fall of angels Jude is referencing here, the point is he's saying is don't be like the angels. They rebelled against God's authority. They left the position that they had in heaven. They rebelled against God's authority and they came down to earth and had sexual immorality. And so Jude is saying don't do that. Don't rebel against God. The moment you decide to leave his path, you are simultaneously committing the sin of unbelief and denying him as your Lord and master. So that's, he's just building a case. He's saying, don't do it. You can see how it's played out in the past. And then finally, the last example he gives is just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is found in Genesis 18 and 19. To summarize it very briefly, two angels come into the city of Sodom to visit with Lot and his family. The men of Sodom try to break down the door so that they can have sex with the two angels. Shortly thereafter, God sends fire from heaven that consumes Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude's saying, okay, please do not forget. Please do not be like the Israelites. They chose unbelief. Don't be like the angels. They chose to rebel against God as their master. And don't be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They chose a path of immorality. He's saying, here are the examples of what not to do. And if you choose those paths, they end in judgment. Rebellion ends in judgment. Unbelief ends in judgment. Immorality ends in judgment. You say, well, all this talk of judgment, the opening passage said that you wish us mercy and peace and love. So sometimes it's hard for us to understand how a God, our God, can be simultaneously full of love and mercy, but simultaneously be a God who judges wickedness. It's hard for us to understand God and his, his spirit, and it's hard for us to understand it. But we can try, and, and sometimes when we try, illustrations are helpful. How can something be simultaneously two different things? And so it makes me think, and I read this in a book this week, but the ocean during a hurricane is simultaneously furious and calm. If you think of the ocean during a hurricane, on the top there's ferocious waves, and just a few yards beneath the ferocious waves of a hurricane exists calm and still waters. 
So we should yield the fact that we can't understand God. He is infinitely greater than us, but uh, maybe a sliver of understanding of how it's possible that he could simultaneously be a God who judges wickedness but also extends mercy is maybe he's a bit like a hurricane who gives furious, can present as furious judgment on the one hand and yet calm and peaceful simultaneously. But as much as we struggle to understand it, fundamentally, I think most of us in this room want God to judge wickedness. We actually want God to judge those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. We want that because, at least I want it, as I think back on the report from 2018 that showed us how ungodly people crept into the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania and perverted the grace of God into sensuality. In 2018, we learned of over 300 priests who were accused of sexually abusing children. 99 of those were from the Diocese of Pittsburgh. And God ought to judge them. And it's not just the Catholics. It's the, it's the Southern Baptists. It's, it's probably present in all the different denominations. The Southern Baptists were revealed in 2019 in the Houston Chronicle for having roughly 380 clergy, lay leaders, and volunteers that faced allegations of sexual misconduct, leaving behind over 700 victims since 1998. We can't ignore the fact that we, within Christianity, have allowed people, ungodly people, to creep into our churches, abuse and pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And I don't know about you, but I want them to be judged by God. I also want God to be able to redeem all people. And so if anyone has abused the grace of God, all men and women are extended forgiveness if they will admit their sin, believe in Jesus Christ's forgiveness, bow their knee before their king and commit to surrendering their life to him. The fact that people are creeping into our churches is one of the reasons we ask you to get uh, labels for your kids whenever you check them into our kids' ministries. It's one of the reasons why we have policies and procedures for our classrooms and our teachers. It's one of the reasons why we background check all of our children's ministry volunteers is because we agree with Jude that uh, people have crept in to the church over the years and have perverted the grace of God into sensuality. We just kind of like to pick which one of them God judges and which ones of them don't really need any judgment. But verse 8, we want to get to verse 8. He sort of summarizes. So he says, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So as you look at that verse, what are these people relying on? Are they relying on the Word of God? Nope. Are they relying on the Holy Spirit? Nope. They're relying on their dreams. And so do not on our list of what not to do, do not simply rely on your dreams. Let's rely on God's word and the Holy Spirit. But he summarizes these people again. He says, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So we're not sure exactly what's going on in this church, but we're beginning to see a theme, aren't we? They defile the flesh and they reject authority. It sounds a bit like there's something going on physically with their bodies, with sensuality. The examples he gives are Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis 6. Something is happening in the church that Jude is writing to where people are abusing this grace of God and leading people into an unhealthy path regarding their sexuality. This third one in his list, Blaspheme the Glorious Ones, is where I will just admit to you I don't know exactly what Jude is referencing here. So when he says, don't blaspheme the glorious ones, it's saying, don't blaspheme the angels. 
okay. Um, this is where, again, we have to just yield to the fact that we don't really understand what's going on. Maybe he's referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. That was certainly blaspheming some angelic beings. Uh, it doesn't get any clearer when you move to verse 9. Verse 9 just amps up the confusion. Because uh, Jude says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So if you're like me, you read that verse and you think, okay, I don't, I don't have a clue what you're talking about there. And if you're thinking to yourself, I don't remember that story in scriptures because it's not there, it's not in the Bible. Um, in Jude's day, just like in our day, there were other books that had been written. And if you go into my office today, you'll see a lot of books on my shelves that help me understand the Bible, good books that help me understand the Bible that aren't inspired by God, but nevertheless help me understand the Bible. And in Jude's day, they had the same. They had books. And one of them was called The Assumption of Moses. And so we think that Jude's audience probably was familiar with this book, The Assumption of Moses. And in it, it's strange, but the angel, Archangel Michael has Moses' body, and Satan comes along and tries to interrupt Michael's mission. And the Archangel Michael chooses not to engage with Satan. He, doesn't, he chooses not to blaspheme Satan but rather he chooses to carry out the mission that God's given him, leaving the judgment of Satan for God. That illustration apparently landed 2,000 years ago. It just serves to confuse me a little bit. But that's the explanation of the passage as best as I can give it to you. We want to wrap it up this morning with verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So as we wrap this up, we want to answer two questions. What does it mean to blaspheme what you don't understand? And what does it mean to be destroyed by what you instinctively do understand? And I think it's a really beautiful poetic language of Jude. So what does it mean to blaspheme what you don't understand? Well, I think it means that you blaspheme the spiritual things, right? And I think the things that you understand instinctively are your physical things. So you, there's things we don't understand. We already confessed that early in the sermon. I don't understand how God in his infinite wisdom allows certain things to happen, why he judges some and, and doesn't seem to judge others, how he can be a God of grace and mercy consistently. There's a lot about the spiritual world that I don't understand. And so what happens when there's things that we don't understand, sometimes we can blaspheme them. And with blaspheme, it's like a religious word, but it simply just means that you uh, either you disobey it or you mock it. And so I don't understand, this is maybe how it sounds like, I don't understand why God would care what two consenting adults do. Well, it could be that you ought not to blaspheme what you don't understand, but maybe you should just yield, yield yourself to the fact that he's wiser than you. In Ephesians, or I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understandings. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Could be that that's what we ought to do, not blaspheme what we don't understand, disobey what we don't understand, but we should just trust in the Lord with all our heart and not lean on our own understandings. What does it mean to be destroyed by what you do understand instinctively? like unreasoning animals. Well, do you have to teach a child how to lie to get out of trouble? Do you have to teach a child how to throw a fit when they don't get their way? Do you have to teach people about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? Do you have to teach a young adult, man or woman, 
what a sexual desire is. No, like there's certain things that come instinctively to us in our flesh, in our physical bodies. And the irony of the situation is, is Judah's saying, oh, you blaspheme what you don't understand in the spiritual world. And the things that you understand instinctively, those are the things that are going to destroy you. Why? Because you chose to blaspheme what you don't understand. You chose to reject your Lord and maker, Jesus Christ. You chose to abuse his grace because you didn't understand how it could be the right path for you. And therefore, the things that you instinctively understand how to do are going to be your destruction. And Jude is telling us what not to do. He's saying, don't do that. Let's trust and obey. I grew up in church, maybe you did as well, and the churches that I grew up in had a tendency to really highlight what not to do. I grew up in a context that was like, okay, here's what not to do. Don't go there, and don't do that, and don't drink that, and, and, and don't do that at church, and don't play that music at church, and you don't say that at church, and you don't wear that to church, and there was a lot of do-nots. We had a pretty long what not to do list. And there was a lot of finger pointing about what not to do, don't do, don't do, don't do. And yet here we stand, here I stand all those years later having grown up and I look back and I can see, oh my goodness, for all of our urgency, for all of our focus on what not to do, they still crept in. Unhealthy sexual understandings, abuse of God's grace, rejecting God as our master, those things still crept in and we were vigilant, pointing fingers about what not to do. How did that happen? Because for every finger pointing out, there's three or four pointing back, aren't there? The application of the sermon for us this morning isn't to leave here or just stay in the room pointing fingers. Oh, I bet you that's the one. Oh, I, if, if that stopped or, but it's to look inward and ask ourselves the question, am I perverting the grace of God into sensuality? Am I denying God's authority? Am, am I, where am I not obeying? Where am I not trusting? Where am I falling into immorality? When do I mock what I don't understand? And if we could leave here that way, then I think if we could each take responsibility for our own hearts, then that might be an effective strategy to not let these people creep in with their false teachings.